This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves, overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today. If you didn't get a chance to catch last week's episode with Laura Dugovic, I highly recommend it. And she walks me through my fears of childbirth, which should be coming any day now. I am shocked that I am still here at 38 weeks. Um, had a full week of, of labor last week, but I've been feeling good this week. I'll definitely keep you up to date on that front if you are interested. I tend to post more about my personal life on my Instagram page at About Progress, so you can connect with me there as well. If you are a new listener today, a special welcome to you. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe so that way you get the latest episode downloaded directly to your phone for free each and every Wednesday. And if you keep coming back, I would love it if you could leave me a review or a rating on iTunes. And also share podcasts that you love with people in your life. A great way to do that is to take a screenshot of the episode and you can text it or email it to someone that you know would benefit from this episode. Or you can also share it in public with social media. And if you do that, make sure you tag me at About Progress and use the hashtag About Progress Podcast so that I can connect with you there. Today you will be hearing from someone I love. Her name is Mallory Wallstrom Wright. She is a friend from growing up. We danced together, went to the same high school, although we weren't in the same grade her sister was with me and a good friend. I loved reconnecting with Mallory. She was nominated by her sister to be on the show and I was blown away by her eloquence. I think she should be a speaker on this topic. She is going to be talking about her struggles with perfectionism, how they were centered on insecurity, and it led to eating disorders for her, which I am well familiar with, and many of you are. But she shares how a series of events in her life encouraged her to change. And one of the biggest ones was her brother needing a kidney transplant and Mallory knowing that she needed to be healthy enough to give it to him. And she did do that. So Mallory shares her story in such an amazing way. I know you're going to love hearing from her. I'm here with Mallory Wallstrom Wright. Thanks so much for being on the show, Mallory. Thank you, Monica. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, you and I go way back, but I'd like to have you start by giving us a little introduction. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I'm married to Dallin, right? And we have three kids. We currently live in Kaysville, Utah, which is where we were both born and raised. So it's kind of cool how our lives led us back here. And we're sharing a lot of the same experiences from our childhood now with our kids, which is really cool. We have three kids. Um ages six, four, and two. And uh, yeah, I graduated college in music performance. I studied at the University of Arizona, as well as Brigham Young University. And um, even though after college and after graduation, I had lots of performing opportunities with the harp, um, you know, playing weddings and special events and uh, community orchestras, my passion is teaching. And so I mainly teach harp lessons out of my home now. And uh, 
raise my kids and I actually teach ballet too here locally. I'm very passionate about teaching. I think there's something special about teacher-student relationships. So yeah, that's kind of me. Oh, I love it. And I have such a special place in my heart for Kaysville, Utah, (laughs) you know, and, and everything about what you're doing. I mean, that was definitely a dream of mine growing up to stay right there and have my kids go to Davis High and and all of that. So you're living my dream. That's what you're doing. So That's obviously, great. I mean, it's clear you're a very goal-oriented person or someone who's at least uh, done a lot of big things. I mean, I remember you playing the harp so beautifully. We danced together, um, although you right. were a, you're a little younger than me, so I was, um, I'm the same age as your sister. So can you tell right. our audience a little bit more about what you were like growing up? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I had a very, very happy childhood. In fact, I know I know how incredibly blessed I was to grow up in a home with two loving, supportive parents. I had six siblings, came from a really big family, and I've always considered my siblings my best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was I like? I was known as the kind of kid that would get up in a restaurant on a table and dance around just to make people laugh. Like, <laughs> Always had to be yeah. the center of attention, always had to be the goofball, and uh, just was motivated by being outgoing and how many friends can I make. And I think a lot of people from my childhood who knew me would be surprised to know that I think a lot of the goal orientation and the outgoing personality, um, the root of a lot of that was just crippling low self-esteem. Hmm. And... I had this opportunity growing up in, like I said, the most amazing family, amazing parents who I just adore and love. Um, They were able to give me lots of opportunities growing up. Um, I played tennis competitively. I played Mm -hmm. harp and ballet, and they gave me lots of opportunities to develop talent, which I am always, just will always be so grateful for. Um, But, you know, when, when it's the root of your personality and it's nothing... My parents did. It's nothing anyone did. It was just I was born a competitive person, and I just never had a good sense of self-worth. And so with that at the root, it made me try to validate myself in all the wrong places. You know, I was looking Mm -hmm. for my self-esteem in the wrong places. And so um, when it came to being outgoing and trying to make people laugh and being the center of attention and the life of the party, um, I didn't know it then. You know, but looking back, I can clearly see that that was me just craving some validation from people mm-hmm. around me that I was worth something, and that you know, if I had friends, that me that meant I was I could confirm to myself that I was someone that had worth. And yeah. if I was getting a four zero in school, I felt like you know I could stand out in my family to my to my parents and make them proud. You know, being the youngest of seven kids. I always felt this need to go big or go home to make them be proud of me, even though that's never, you know, I think that they'd be even sad to hear that because they love mm-hmm. me unconditionally. And even though I knew that, when you have low self-esteem like that, you have to validate yourself in unique ways like that. So. You know, it's so curious because I, I, I feel uh, we have a similar story in that way. It's not like... Um... Um, I myself was raised in a really happy, you know, family. So it's just interesting for me to try to think about where do you think that low self-esteem came from? And, you know, it's, it's right. tricky to nail that down, I, I'm assuming. But what have you thought about on that topic? You know, I, I, I didn't think a lot about that topic mm-hmm. until I was about this podcast and um, being interviewed. But it's interesting because as a parent now, my oldest daughter reminds me a lot of myself. And a lot of times that makes me want to cry because <laughs> yeah. she, is kind of, she is kind of driven and she seeks my approval constantly and she wants to win the contest at school. And um, though I'm not just saying, okay, she must have low self-esteem, I'm already seeing those tendencies that Right now, I'm trying to make sure she knows with a surety that failing is okay, and we learn from failure. And like, I I don't I don't care 
if you, you know, come home with a perfect report card or I don't care if best answer in your class. Like, I don't care. And, you know, the thing is, is I'm not saying my parents didn't do that for me, but I'm saying when I look at this situation, um, I think as parents, we need to be aware that maybe they're being motivated by something more than just, you know, they're driven. Maybe it is low self-esteem and it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing to nail down, like you said, because everyone's so individual. And, um, I think my parents were, while I, I struggled living in my sister's shadows and mm-hmm. that's the other thing. My two older sisters did everything. I did everything they did, which is not uncommon. You know, families with all girls that all dance or all their kids play piano. And that's not an uncommon pattern for parents to do. But for me and my personality, it became an automatic measuring stick. Mm-hmm. Like I had two sisters that, and two sisters that played harp. And so I immediately, it was, am I as good as them? I want to be better than them. I want to stand out. I need to stand out. And something my parents did for me that was um, just almost just completely was like my life, like my lifeline um, was letting me have something that was totally uniquely mine. And that was as random as it sound horses. Here I was living in a place that had nothing to do with ranch life or horses. But my dad would drive me up to Liberty, Utah, an hour drive away, where he he did buy me a horse and let us let us board it up there, and that was my one thing that was uniquely mine that I didn't have to share with anyone. And even though I have always struggled with low self esteem and perfectionism is kind of how that manifests, I always look back on that horses niche that I had yeah. as my parents' way of like letting me have something that was uniquely mine. Hmm. So I think that's important. Oh, definitely. That gives me a lot to think about for my own kids. And, you know, you talked about, you know, being driven. There's so much that can motivate that. But I think there's this different level of frenziness and obsessiveness and, you know, compulsive thinking and behavior that comes from doing things over and over again based on trying to get outward validation on who you are inside. So, when did that kind of begin to happen to you? Was that more just like like a gradual development to being more obsessed with it? Or was that also something that kind of came along with you, I guess, when you were born? Yeah, I think I I felt the biggest shift when I was in ninth grade. Um, my, my older, the sister that was just older than me and my family, Meredith, which is who you grew up with, mm-hmm. um, her and I were attached at the hip our entire life. She's my best friend. And we have such a special relationship. Um, one that I looked up to her and tried to be like her in just about every aspect. And it wasn't coming from a place of like jealousy or like rolling my eyes if she did something great. It was pure love and respect and admiration. Mm-hmm. And if she did something wonderful, I was proud of her for it. And I had pride to call her my sister, but I wanted to be as good as her mm-hmm. and everything she did. And I've always held her on a pedestal. And when I was in ninth grade, um, she um, started preparing her life goal to be a professional ballerina. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, here I am trying to live up to her and she just has to go and be like a prodigy ballerina who's so incredible. Mm-hmm. She was amazing. And she just had this natural talent for it. And even though I never consciously thought like I'd ever be as good as her because I could very well see that she, this was like her thing and she had a special thing, special talent for it. Um, I definitely was affected when she started preparing for college. She moved from our local studio down to Valley West conservatory. She danced every day. And then she started extreme dieting. And at the time she said, you know, this is just what ballerinas have to do, you Mm -hmm. know? And it started to affect me in a way that my best friend now wasn't getting treats with me at the movie theater and wasn't eating candy with me at home. And she cut sugars out of her diet and she started having this pattern of behavior that was very, very intense and it affected me. And I started without even realizing it, kind of copying her behavior. At first it was more just kind of like, I felt a little dumb, like to be around her and, I did like I felt weird eating a cookie in front of her and so I suddenly I started having a weird relationship with food because I could see her having a weird relationship with food mm-hmm. you know and it affected me now with Meredith 
this dieting only lasted about six months when finally my mom took her to the doctor when she got down to 95 pounds. Yeah. And when the do- and that snapped Meredith right out of it. And she it never really turned into an eating disorder for her. She just mm-hmm. did some extreme dieting when she was already so thin, so she didn't need to lose weight. But for me, it started it it started like it awoke a monster in me where I realized I had something in my life that gave me a lot of attention, which I hate this about our society. But when I was thin. I got a lot of attention, not mm. just the ballet class, but in general, girls would compliment me. And that fueled something inside me where I had low self-esteem. It's like, oh, but I'm getting yeah. praised for this and I'm getting attention for this. And so I wanted to do it more. And I noticed it would fuel up worse and worse if I started feeling like I was falling short in an area. Like if I wasn't winning a tennis tournament, if I wasn't getting the solo in ballet, if I wasn't getting straight A's, that was something I could immediately control and immediately get feedback for. And it was ninth grade. It was that little thing. Meredith had a short little thing with it and realized it was going somewhere unhealthy and she was able to turn around. But for me, it was just the beginning of a major issue with food and having an eating disorder. And I used it as like an outlet for whenever I felt inadequate. It was something I could immediately control. Mm-hmm. How long did this go on for you? Was it an off and on a uh, thing or was it pretty consistent for years? Because sometimes it can ebb and flow, you know, with patterns and other times it's pretty consistent. Well, it went on, it went on for years, but it definitely was an ebb and flow of intensity. Mm-hmm. And like I said, if I was doing well in areas of my life where I felt like good about myself because I was being successful in other areas, then I wasn't as obsessive with my eating. Mm-hmm. There was a direct correlation with the successes in my life and what was going on around me. I do know that I noticed, looking back for sure, that while in high school, living with my parents, it was definitely kept in check. And I don't know if they even knew they were keeping it in check, but putting healthy meals on the table and having people kind of watching me and watching my behavior, you know, it definitely... Um, kept me eating, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. No, it does. <laughs> but um, even though my mind was unhealthy and my relationship with food was unhealthy and my body image was like the way I viewed my body was very unhealthy, living at home kept it in check. It was when I moved to Arizona on my own, I remember distinctively feeling like, now I can do this the way I want to do it. I don't have anybody watching me. Nobody's going to care if I don't eat anything all day. Yeah. And that's when it got the most, right. And that's when it got the most out of control was when I moved away to Arizona, away from my support group, away from my family. Well, and that's also a huge transition, a huge life transition, right? Uh, so it goes back to your coping. So yeah, your coping mechanism yeah. is your go to is to, to rein it in, right? So, so what uh, was it like then? It. Yeah, tell me about Arizona so, then for you. Yeah, Arizona was a hard chapter. It was also wonderful in a lot of ways, but um, it was I was pretty miserable that first year. Um, like I said, Meredith has always been my best friend, and at that time, she went on an LDS mission. Yeah, my husband, my then husband, my now husband, which we you know we grew up in Kaysel together, so we dated a little bit growing up. Um, he served and he left for his LDS mission around the same time Meredith did. So I had two people that were absolutely my biggest influences for good and positive in my life leave the country, mm-hmm. you know, one for two wow. years, one for a year and a half. And that lined up exactly when I moved to Arizona. And so I was mm-hmm. dealing with their absences as well as moving away from home, which I'm very close to my parents, um, living in a new place on my own for the first time and in a competitive harp music program. And so in a lot of ways, it was like more, more pressure, more emotional strain that I could handle. And it definitely was a coping mechanism. But I remember distinctively thinking, I realized very quickly that, yes, I'm a talented harpist, but wow, I don't, I'm not the best one in this program. I'm far from it. And I really struggled that first semester feeling like I, I just can't measure up here and that's when I definitely spiraled. I would go days, I'd go days without touching food because it it was this weird empowerment that 
I'm not I'm not good enough to be the best in this program, but you know, I can be thin and it doesn't even make sense to my brain anymore because I'm so far removed from that, but it was so real then. Mm-hmm. It was this real need to control something in my life. And I was sad, I was homesick. I had people in my life that I missed and there none of it I could control, but not eating and getting attention for being thin that I could control. And it became like a drug. It became a, an addiction. And I hated food. It's funny. I think now about it's I'm so far removed from it. But I think about my mindset then it's like food was an enemy to me. And I looked at it like it grossed me out. And I didn't want anything to do with it. And I was trying to hide that from people. So yeah, Arizona was a weird chapter because I oh, felt like I was living this silent, this silent, like I was prisoner to this, but it was very silent. I, I did not open up to people about it. Mm-hmm. Very few people knew I struggled at all. So it's very interesting. Well, you touched on a few things though that I, I'd like to talk a little bit about. You talked about how you got empowerment, you know, through this behavior And that's one thing that was kind of hard for me to recognize in myself as I went through my own um, recovery from this that has taken a long time, as you know, it just takes a long time, (laughs) was recognizing two tendencies. One that you've already talked about, looking outward for validation, which I didn't like to learn about myself. And the second was this uh, pride issue, too, about wanting to be better than other people. So how do you think that, you know, how can you see that coming into play with this? You've already mentioned it a little bit. You know, it's it's hard to talk about for Mm -hmm. me. And it's it's something that is interesting to realize in myself, because I've always thought of myself, I mean, I would always like to think of myself as a genuine person and someone who always tried to be kind. I've always tried to think of others highly right and Mm -hmm. so when I see these tendencies in myself and when I look back on that time period I've literally thought like who am I to think I should be better than everyone else around me like where was the humility of just appreciating someone else's talent over mine I mean what what is so weird about low self-esteem is that you're so it, it consumes you and you become so inwardly drawn that it it almost makes you a prisoner to be able to appreciate other people because you're so concerned about your low self-worth that you can't appreciate someone else's talent. You can't appreciate someone else's beauty because it just turns into almost self-hatred. Like, well, I'm just not as good as her. I'm not as pretty as her or him. And I, so I, I can't even appreciate that person for who they are and what their talents are and what their successes are, because I am just too jealous and too down in the dumps to appreciate that. And I didn't realize that until I was, you know, recovering from this mindset that having low self-esteem kept me from being a very a, a genuine person in a lot of ways, because I was just so consumed with jealousy or, you know, resentment and, it was just like you said, it was a pride issue. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people necessarily think of low self-esteem as prideful, but it is extremely prideful. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of yeah, ironic. You're right, though. You know, I didn't think about it, you know, those two going hand in hand, but they so often can. You know, you just talk right. about, hmm. You know, I had Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife on the show talking about perfectionism, and she's good at turning things on its head. And you are too, right. just like what you said there. <laughs> but one of the things I like that she said um, was get over yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, we're, for we're, real, though. and she said that like, we're all in this together. And you know, there's a, yeah. she's, she talks about perfectionism being a lack of development and a lack of maturity. But you know, sometimes that. that can come with age, right? Like we just grow, we learn, right. oh, someone else, someone else's light doesn't diminish my own. But Right. A lot of times people live their whole lives <laughs> with that lack of maturity right. and lack of development. So right. I want to know now what shifted for you to move towards that development of a new mindset, a development of maturity in this realm. And I think that has to start with kind of what the low point was. Right. After, um, I suffered in Arizona and I really, really did suffer and sad. I'm sad to say I, you know, I was surrounded by 
so many young single adult women who were suffering with the same things. I mean, I had roommates that I could see that were just obsessed with food and it just fueled my issues more. And I, it it breaks my heart to think it is, it is heartbreaking to think Hmm. of so many people struggling with this. Just how normal it is, right? How acceptable it is. Right. I know. And I remember, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent, but just along those lines, just walking through the mall and the bombardment of advertising and the bigger than life pictures of one body type and one stereotype. And, and I just always felt like less than always, no matter where I went. So that was a hard year. And, uh, um, it was a year and a half, actually a year and a half into my Arizona when Meredith, um, my sister was finishing up her LDS mission in Chile and I had the opportunity to go to that country and pick her up. And so we were reunited. Yeah, we were reunited there in Chile. And um, that first night back together, we stayed up all night and talked. And I just broke down to her and basically said, like, I need I need help. Mm -hmm. Like, I I remember just sitting there on, on this bed with her and just crying and telling her how unhappy I was. I told her I can't I don't look at food normal. I'm obsessed. Like I'm not even looking at other people normally anymore. Like I look at other people and I dissect their bodies in my mind, like down to what size their waist is, where are their legs. And everything was a comparison. Like, Oh, immediately I look at her and think I'm thinner than her. So I feel good about myself or, Oh, look, that girl's thinner than me. And now I don't feel good about myself. Like I was just spiraling. And I said to Meredith, I said, help me, like help Mm. me. (laughs) And, um, Mm. I remember uh, a lot of things about that conversation, but the the thing I'll share is that she told me, and um, we're we're very religious, but it replies whether it applies whether you're religious or not. But she she said, Mallory, you need to look up and not side to side for your self esteem. Hmm. And you know, I've I've shared this before with some of my students that have you know no re- religious affiliation. And it works the same way by saying you need to look in and not mm-hmm. side to side yeah. um, for your self-esteem. And uh, I, I've i heard this quote so many times, but comparison is the thief of joy. And I just remember us going into that, the depth of that concept of you can't look side to side. You're looking, you're looking all around you to define your self-worth, but it can't, self-esteem can't come, it can't it can't survive from that atmosphere. It has to come from within and you have to stop looking side to side to define your worth, but rather in at your heart and your characteristics that make you unique and beautiful. And she challenged me at that talk. This was the the beginning of me trying to change. She challenged me to just immediately stop looking at other people like that. Stop looking them in the face instead. Like what, Mm -hmm. what, you know, what kind of a person she is. Look the person in the face. Don't look her up and down. Don't check out her body, which is so weird that we girls do that to each other. But yeah. it's like, look her in the face. And who is that person? And um, don't look at your body in the mirror. Look at your face and look in your eyes. And what do you see there? And what kind of person are you? Like, what is at the core of your heart? And it obviously is never an immediate change. But that was That's huge. the very beginning of me looking it's like I looked at the world through different eyes all of a sudden. I was I was mm-hmm. really trying hard to look at people for who they are and not for what they look like. And the same with myself. Like when I looked in the mirror, I tried not to step back and look myself up and down. Instead, I just looked myself straight in the eyes and did that for a very long time <laughs> until it wasn't even a temptation anymore to look elsewhere besides just into my eyes. Wow, that's such a huge thing there. That's something I'm still trying to learn. I mean, and you can right. see that. Why don't we do that? Like you said to each other, when you can see the flicking eyes. I, I'm always so aware yeah. of that. It, it bothers I hate me. It. Um, me too. You know, a lot of people who are in the trenches of eating disorders and for many, many years, they're more afraid of recovery than... Right. <laughs> than staying where they are, you know, in a really, really unhappy, obsessed place. 
Um, so why did you want to change? What, what gave you that motivation to take your sister's advice and actually have the will to practice it? Right. I, um, I relate to that because I dealt with that feeling for a long time that I didn't want help. Mm-hmm. I, and when people would tell me, Mallory, you're too skinny, that was a compliment to me. Yeah. And I was like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, thank you. Good. Then I'm, I'm being I'm doing successful. What I'm doing. Right. So th- that's what makes this, it's such a mental disorder and that's what makes it so tricky and so individual and, and people have their own timelines with that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I just was so unhappy and I could just feel the life being sucked out of me and I I couldn't go out to eat with my friends without and that's the thing even if I ate it was guilt and then I wouldn't eat for two days after that because Mm -hmm. I felt guilty for that one meal and it's Mm -hmm. like I constantly felt like I had to punish myself if I did eat something and it was just this this nasty horrible relationship with food that was all consuming that made me feel miserable and like I said, being a very, very religious person, um, I felt myself being more and more distant from God. Mm-hmm. And that's when it started feeling like something, like I, I can't connect with God anymore. I can't connect with my friends. I, I'm feeling like on this island all by myself. I'm not happy. And it's like I wanted to be out of that. I wanted, I looked, I'm looking at people like at a restaurant across the way eating, laughing and just eating their food without thinking. Like they ordered the cheeseburger. Like, and everybody who knows me now knows that I'm like weirdly obsessed with cheese. Like I love cheeseburgers. It's always been my favorite food since yeah. I was a kid. I, I deprived myself of my favorite food for <laughs> years and years. And I would look across the restaurant at something I wish I could order. And that's how I yeah. think of it. Like, I wish I could eat that. And I'd be jealous. I'd be jealous of those people. Like, they're so happy and they're living such a normal life. Like, how did they do that? And it was that realization that I wanted out. Like, I literally felt like a prisoner and I wanted out. Mm. And I didn't know how to, I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to go to my parents. I was embarrassed. And the one person I knew that I could talk to about it was was Mare. And um, I'm grateful she was that person for me. And I'm grateful that she was able to so level-headedly give me such blunt advice and correction that day that kind of woke me up. And like I said, it wasn't immediate. Like I went back to Arizona after that trip and struggled still, but at least there was that desire to change. And that's yeah. all that matters is as long as you're heading in the right direction, it doesn't have to be, I mean, cause that's change. Change doesn't happen. It's a, it's a process. And as long as you're yes. heading towards that goal of being that person you want to be, that's all that matters. You know, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. when you get there. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Let's talk about what demanded more of a shift in in your right. progress and, and what happened in, in your life and in your family's life that uh, pushed you further along in your recovery? Okay, so about six months after that, maybe less, maybe more like five and a half, five and a half or six months after that conversation with Meredith, I moved back to Arizona and uh, started my semester back at school there. And um, like I said, about six months later, I got a phone call that my brother's kidneys had failed. And this is my brother who's 10 years older than me. And um, I, I left school. I was very upset. We knew he had a condition called IgA nephropathy. And that we were told very vaguely, like sometime in the future, he may need a transplant. But it was just not on our radar. He was only he was only 30. And so his kidneys just failed out of the blue. Wow. 
and I rode my bike home from school and being just distraught that I was so far away from my, my family at such a hard time. Um, the only thing I've ever done in situations like that is prayed. And so I, I knelt down in my living room there in my apartment and I just prayed and I cried and what can I do? Like, I'm so far away. What can I do? Um, and I just had this very distinct impression and a feeling of peace come over me after that experience that I would be the kidney donor. And wow. I was taken, I was taken off guard by it. Yeah. I was just like, I had no idea. I had no idea what that meant, but it was the thought that came into my mind that you will donate your kidney to your brother. And so I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what does that mean? And I'll never forget the first thought that came into my mind after I realized that, okay, I'm going to be the, the kidney donor. The very next thing that came into my mind was, what if you can't? What if after all these years of abusing your body like this, that when it comes down to this moment that your brother needs your help and needs you to save his life, that your body's not strong enough and not healthy enough to do that because you've been struggling with this eating disorder for so long. And what if you can't do that? And I just remember being horrified by that mm. thought. And it made me cry because I thought, how could I have abused my body this long? And what if there's long-term effects? And what if, like, here I am feeling like I need to donate my kidney to my brother? And what if I can't even be considered because of this? and that was another big spark. It wasn't the biggest change that happened, but that was the second really big moment of I need a healthy body, and I have not been taking care of it, and I need it now because I need to donate my kidney. <laughs> okay, so that's a big thing, right? You know, that's... Right. And, and strangely enough, it's still um, an outward motivation, right? Like so much of what... Right. Had- had rooted the eating disorder was outward validation and this is still an outward goal, but it's so much different. Right. I know. Very Because it's not about you. Maybe that's what the difference is. So where did it go from there? Like how, um, what did you, what steps did you take to get better? And, and you know, what happened with your brother and the, and the kidney? Right. Well, so I, I moved home, um, right then and there. I, I went that, same week and told my professor that I was moving home to donate my kidney to my brother and I didn't know what that meant recovery wise and so that I was going to transfer programs and it was heartbreaking because the University of Arizona is a huge program for HARP and it was like a dream to go there Mm. I've been I had toured the world with them we went to Brazil and Europe performing you know all over and here I was just leaving that all behind. And funny enough, I hadn't even been tested yet. I was just going to ask that's that. How, that's how, that's how sure knew. I was. I, I, it hmm. sounds crazy. I just knew. I just knew that I needed, that I was going to be the one to do it. So I moved home and got tested. And thankfully, my body was healthy enough. And I was fine to be a donor. And um, miraculously, I was an identical match that they couldn't explain. They said they'd never seen a match that <laughs> that identical and um, since like identical twins. They said they'd never oh seen that goodness. outside That's of identical a- twins. Yeah. Cool. So we um, so we went forward to surgery. While well, the surgery did not go well, um, while I was um, in surgery, they had overlooked through all the months of testing somehow, they'd overlooked that there was a web of blood vessels behind that kidney. So when they went to cut it out, it just turned into this intense internal bleeding. And so right there on the table, I'm bleeding out. They have to have multiple blood transfusions to get that under control. After the blood transfusions occurred, I had been under for so long that they were very quickly trying to close me up so that, you know, I could be stabilized and everything. And in the process of closing me up, they actually lost the surgical needle inside my body. Couldn't find it. so They left it there. And uh, I am in recovery. And I'm coming out of the anesthesia. And I didn't know what had happened in surgery. But I remember looking around the room and the nurses are asking me, you know, how are you feeling? And kind of coming out of anesthesia when I feel this crushing weight on my chest. And I can't breathe in and I can't breathe out. Oh. And it's just the most panic feeling I've ever felt. 
and I'm realizing I can't breathe. And my lungs had collapsed in recovery. And so I'm sitting there and I'm watching the nurses around me call a code blue. They lower my table, uh, my bed down, and they, you know, they start intubating me and everything goes dark. And I wake up um, in the ICU on a ventilator and I was confused. The last thing I knew they like were doing, you know, a code blue on me. I wasn't breathing. I literally went through the thoughts in that moment, like, what are my parents going to do? My brother's never going to forgive himself. Like, I was convinced that that was it. Like, that was the end of my life. So when I wake up in the ICU and I can't talk because there's a tube down my throat, they put a piece of paper and a pen in my hand um, so I could communicate. And the first thing I wrote was, am I dying? Because that's where my head was I honestly mm. believed that I was dying of course you would right without that um, I know it was very scary um what happened next is what became the forever turning point for me as far as eating disorders go um as I recovered I remember being in the ICU on a ventilator and thinking to myself I need my body to breathe like lungs I need you to be strong enough to breathe for me so I can get off this machine as soon as I I graduated off of the machine I remember how weak I felt and how sitting up was so excruciating and I remember um you know with each step of recovery from can I get out of bed today can I walk I remember sitting there early days of recovery thinking, what would it feel like to be able to run right now? Mm. And having my body be strong enough to just move and run, and what would that feel like? And what this did changed me forever because suddenly I was just so amazed and grateful for what my body can do and not for what it looks like. Mm. And I just realized what a gift my body was. And what a miracle my body was. Here was it saved my brother's life. Like they literally took my organ out of my body, put it in my brother's. He is healthy now. And even though my cover, recovery was rough and that surgery was scary, I'm, I'm alive. And I was able to live through that and I survived that. And I look at my body as this incredibly miraculous thing. And I just don't take a day with it for granted. And now I look at it and I say, it's, not only saved my brother, it's given birth to three beautiful children, and my body did that. And yes. I'm just in complete awe of what it can do for me. And even just going on a walk down the street or wrapping my arms around my children each day or just taking deep breaths in, like I'll never forget what it felt like to have a machine breathe for me. Mm. But being able to breathe and speak and laugh with my family, like I know it sounds so basic, but it was a moment a turning, a just forever turning point for me that I will never take my body for granted. I don't care what it looks like. I will never, ever care again what it looks like. I am just grateful for what it can do and what a miracle it is. Oh, that's so incredible, Mallory. You know, just knowing, <laughs> you know, you literally were at death's door there and to see that profound change that experience had on you. I'm curious though, did did those demons come knocking? I mean, since that was so many years ago, um, right. Ha have those demons still come knocking for you? And when they have, what have you done to combat them? Here's the interesting thing. I think I will fight perfectionism my entire life. I think this is a journey for me that I will have to just be, proud of myself for the progress I make, but I don't think I will ever overcome being a perfectionist. I think it is so ingrained in yeah. who, who I am. And that's one of my lifelong struggles. I will always think that, um, those early years of my teen, I mean, those late teen years and those early 20 years where that aspect of my personality manifests itself in an eating disorder, that doesn't happen for me and hasn't happened to me since the kidney disorder, but perfectionism and low self-esteem has manifested, manifested itself in other ways. Mm -hmm. Like, I still feel like, to feel like a good mom, my house needs to be perfectly clean. Mm -hmm. And I feel like pressure to create 
wonderful traditions for my kids because this is their childhood and I need to make sure it's magical and I put pressure on myself and I still struggle with feeling like that need to have a perfectionist mindset and it is a constant working at it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the eating disorder, it honestly is, it's like a miracle almost because I have not since that day struggled with my body image, struggled with food. It was such a profound wow, my body's a miracle. I will treasure this forever that I have not struggled, not through pregnancy, you would think. And Meredith has always been shocked because she's like, what about when you gain weight in pregnancy? You're like, you know, like you struggled with this so badly and so intensely, like, mm-hmm. have you struggled? And I'm, I'm like, no, I, I look at my pictures of my like chubbier face in pregnancy and it doesn't bother me. Oh, All I, I see that. is that I look, yeah, I look past the chubby face and I say, there's a living freaking baby in my stomach <laughs> in that picture. Like, that's yeah. incredible. Mm. And that's miraculous. And how many women can't have children? How many yeah. people are infertile? And how many, you know, like, mm-hmm. how many people can't experience that? And I did experience that. Who cares how much weight I gained during pregnancy? I don't care. I, I honestly never looked at the scale. I never weighed myself in pregnancy because I don't care. When it comes to my body, I love it for what it can do, and I'm grateful for it. And I, when I go back to those moments in the hospital on a ventilator, I'll never forget just feeling like I want a second chance. Like I want to experience my body again. Please let me experience my body and appreciate it this time. And so as far as eating goes and body image, it's been a 180, 100% since that recovery from surgery, but I see it manifesting that low self-esteem and perfectionism Mm -hmm. manifesting itself in other ways that I have to stay on top of and I have to be aware of and I have to call it out when I see it and work on it. And I honestly think it'll just be something I do for life. And I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with accepting that I might have issues (laughs) and stuff that are lifelong and that's okay. I think that's part of our journey in life. Well, that's you, you know, doing what Dr. Finlayson Five said, you're getting over yourself, you know, by admitting right. this is my struggle, this is my weakness, these are my tendencies. It empowers you to to work through them better. And I'm so glad that you would be really transparent about that too, how, you know, it might not manifest itself in one way anymore, but it's still something that you right. have to deal with. Still and there. I think I think so many of us can relate to that. You know, we really can, Mallory. You're not alone in that. I mean, this is my whole premise for the podcast um, and what I do, but it's, it's something I very much have to deal with every day too. And, and so I hear what you're saying there. Um, give me, give me another, I don't know if an example is the good, is a good way to say that, but method maybe, (laughs) you know, what you do to actually resist the pull to, you know, okay. obsessive perfectionism, um, when you notice that within yourself? Oh, I'm trying to think. The first thing that comes to my mind is that I actively teach against it. Mm. Um, as a teacher, I'm in a position with young, very impressionable girls in ballet and harp to kind of give them nuggets of wisdom. And I've always told my always told my husband that as a teacher music and ballet I'm teaching way more than just dance music 100 <laughs> um, yes that, hmm. that's always kind of been my take as a teacher but um I'm hoping I'm answering your question uh, you let are. me just okay so as a teacher in in dance and this is more specific to um body image but I think it applies to kind of all perfectionism in general um as an analogy but as a dance teacher um it's kind of funny for me to look back because when I was still dating my husband, he always said, oh, my girls are never going to dance. And I said, why? Like, it's such a great thing. He said, no. He's like, that's where the beginning of your struggle started. He said, you know, your eating disorder, all of that. He kind of blamed it on dance in the dance world. And um, so now fast forward, I'm a dance teacher. And what I tell my girls is I always ask the girls in my class, you know, what is dance? And they say, you know, well, it's an art. 
said, okay, if dance is an art, then what is your medium? And this question always takes them off guard and it always makes them stop and think for a minute. And they'll say, you know, okay, our bodies are a medium. Then I asked them, would you ever compare a sculpture to a 2D painting or a watercolor painting to an oil painting? Does it make any sense to sit and compare artwork of different mediums? And obviously, no, it doesn't because they're different. And so I tell them that as a dancer, it makes no sense to compare your medium to the person next to you because you are different mediums. You're completely different. You might be tall. You might be round. You might be short. You might be, it doesn't matter what you are, that's you and you own it. And that's what makes you special. And that's what makes you unique. And you're your own medium. And I always tell them, I always tell them that if you are ever going to really love dance, you have to love your medium. You can't love dance unless you love your body. It's impossible because you are creating that art with your body. So how can you love to dance unless you love your body? It doesn't, it, there is no crossover there. And I, I can attest to that because I Absolutely. hated my body when I danced. And it kept me from truly loving dance because dance wasn't about I just love to dance. It was about checking myself out in the mirror and how skinny am I now? Mm-hmm. And I robbed myself for so many years of really, truly finding joy in something that I, I so love now. And I teach these girls this lesson, and I have seen the most incredible change in them. And I've had letters written to me about, I used to care what people saw me eating in the cafeteria, but I don't care anymore. And these these letters and these notes that come from these girls remind me of the changes I've gone through and remind me of my journey. And it doesn't have to be an eating disorder, but being able to say I'm unique and that's okay. And that's what makes me special and to appreciate what we have to offer the life, the the world in general. I mean, it doesn't have to be dance or whatever, but I have something of worth to offer the world. And it doesn't matter how I measure up to anyone else because I'm not giving myself esteem from looking side to side anymore because we've already determined that comparison is truly the thief of joy. So I'm getting my self-esteem from looking in. So when I have those moments where I feel like I have to have that perfect, whatever it is to make me feel worth, I stop and think of the girls in my ballet who I teach and who I tell them that they don't have to fit into a mold to be a ballerina. They don't have to fit into a mold to love this art. And I think of their faces when I teach them that and I can't be a hypocrite. And so I don't have to fit into a mold as a mother, as a wife, as a sister, as a daughter, I can just be me and that is enough. And that I have worth just in my trying and to stop worrying about who or what the destination is, but just to be grateful for a new day to try and a new day to be grateful for who I am and to live that to its fullest. Mallory, that is incredible. I mean, you know, I thought I knew a lot about all this <laughs> myself, from my own experience, but you have taught me a lot tonight. I mean, you've given me a lot of aha moments, um, and I really thank you for that, and I thank you for what you're doing. You know, what you're doing is important, really, really important, and I love how you're doing it. So we've been over a lot, but I, I would love to hear this uh, your answer to this question. What have you learned about yourself the past few years? In the past few years, um, I think the thing that's been most life-changing to me that I've learned is how to be more vulnerable and honest with myself about who I am and why I am that way. And I think it's easy for people, and I know it's always been easy for me to kind of point out what my weaknesses are and what my faults are, what I'm struggling with. But what's hard is to answer the question, why? Like, why do I struggle with this? And why is that in my character? And um, I, I always think of smoke and fire, how fire always precedes smoke. I mean, it causes it. You yeah. can't have smoke without the fire, right? So if, if I look back on all those years I struggled with my eating disorder, if my eating disorder was the smoke, it took me a while to figure out, well, what was the fire that was even causing that? 
And it was hard to be honest enough to say, you know, it was, it was such low self-esteem. I mean, it was even self-loathing to the point that I was trying, I was trying to find a way to prove to myself I was worth something, right? And so I would get this attention, this immediate attention from people. Oh, Mallory, you're so skinny. You're so beautiful. I wish I looked like you. And even though I was so unhealthy and so unhappy, it fed that part of me that said, oh, I must be worth something if I'm getting attention for this. And um, it was hard for me to be honest with myself about that that's what the cause was. And in more recent years, you know, it's been more a struggle with perfectionism. You know, as I've become a mother, um, it's been a a trigger to a lot of self-doubt, as I think Mm. a lot of moms experience. Um, And I think perfectionism has kind of been a a thing I've always struggled with, but it's definitely reared its ugly head a lot more Mm. in recent years. And, And with that, a lot of anxiety. And if that smoke to me, it took me a long time to figure out why do I struggle so bad with this? Why am I such a perfectionist as a mom? Um, but when I could come down and say the fire that causes that is the fear of failure mm. and the fear that I just don't measure up. And to be honest with myself about those aspects of who I am is not only so liberating, but it taught me that there's power in forgiveness and that the person I need to forgive the most is myself. Mm. that at the end of the day, like if I yelled at my kids that day, I feel awful about it. And so many times I would go into spirals, right? Of like, oh, I yelled at them. I'm a horrible person. I'm a horrible mom. And I just spiral down, down, down. Instead of doing that, stopping that process before it even starts and say, yeah, I, I yelled at them today. I feel bad about that. But I forgive myself and I'm going to let it go. And I'm not going to let that moment define me as a mother. Because it isn't who I am. It isn't me, right? Mm. And um, there's this analogy that I've made up that's kind of like put this in perspective for me forever that I think might just help a lot of people. Um, I've been a performer my whole life. And so stage, being on stage and performances is something I can really connect with. But I think a lot of people can connect with too. So if there's a performance going on and it's my life, um, I have let for the majority of my life, my faults, my weaknesses, my shortcomings take center stage, like full blown. They are in the spotlight to the point that most of the time, my strengths and the beautiful things about who I am get shoved off stage completely. You don't even see them. And what starts to happen over time is, as I've let that happen, just as in any show, whatever center stage is usually, usually the title of the show. It usually is the theme, the main themes of the show as I've let my weaknesses and stuff take center stage, it started to define who I was and it started to be me. Like that's what I thought of me because that's what was, I was allowing to be on my center stage. And so in recent years, I've learned to see that I was doing that, keep my faults and weaknesses on stage because I think that that is so important that we look them in the eye and we address them because that's the only way we're ever going to progress and change so keep them on stage but put them in the back put them in the back of the stage and let those things about ourselves that we're proud of take center stage and shine and let those things define who we are and being okay with the faults and the weaknesses that are on stage but not focusing on them we work on them and we progress and we try to improve but we focus on that true part of who we are which is those things that make us us those good things about ourselves and being more honest with ourselves about our weaknesses and our faults, but realizing that they don't define us, that forgiving ourselves is the most powerful thing we could ever do. It's the most powerful gift we can give our kids. Forgiving ourselves is the most powerful thing we could give our husbands, our friends, because what starts to happen is we become more compassionate to those around us. You know, I I honestly am more compassionate for my kids' mistakes, and my husband and I have a better marriage yeah, and it's just it's just a catalyst to beautiful relationships. And so, if I had to sum up what it was that I've learned, it's that it's that I'm more vulnerable and honest with myself about who I am, learning how to forgive myself, learning how to focus on those things that are good about myself, those things that I'm proud of, and that at the end of the day, it's all just about trying to improve. And that life is not a test. It's actually a classroom. (laughs) We're all in this classroom together. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we're all just learning. And, you know, it's just about improving and changing and trying to be our best every day, little by little. And that's why I love your podcast so much because you celebrate this exact thing, that it's not about a destination. It's all just about progress. Oh, that was so nice of you to say it that way. And that is my mission. And I hope that everybody feels feels that, you know, regardless of what you're doing in your life, what your scope is and, and where you have to put your time and, and where you feel like your, your uh, gifts are supposed to take you. I, I hope everyone feels that that's where it really matters is that growth. And like you said, this, this uh, vulnerability of accepting ourselves. I love how you talked about the trickle down effect too to your family, you know, forgiving yourself makes you forgive others easier too. So that was wonderful, right. Mallory. Thank you. Well, thank you again so much for letting me be a part of this. No, you were spectacular and I can't wait to share it. It was (laughs) awesome. Really, isn't Mallory incredible? I thought she was such a natural and so eloquent, so good with her words. So I hope you really enjoyed learning from her. And you know what? I just have to give a big applause to anyone who's ever been on the show. It takes a lot of courage to do that. It's not easy. It's not easy for anyone, regardless of how public their lives are. And Mallory took an especially brave step, I think, to be on the show because this is such a personal story. So thank you very much, Mallory, for being on the show. Last month, I shared an incredible discussion I had with an expert named Dina Alexander of Educate and Empower Kids. She is coming back on the show. This time, she's here to talk about body image with our children, how to teach them how to have a positive view of their body and what it can do. I'll see you next Wednesday for that interview. And until then, take care of yourself.